If you guys have been following the news, you know in the last week uh, there was a major case against uh, Bradley Manning. He was sentenced to 35 years in uh, prison uh, to be served here in our lovely state of Kansas, Fort Leavenworth, I understand, uh, for leaking, intentionally leaking, uh, thousands upon thousands of classified documents to Julius Assange and WikiLeaks. Now, there's been debate about how damaging the leak of this information was. It was all kinds of things. And it appears that at one level there was real damage, there was real harm done. On another level, and not minimizing that for sure, another element of that was just the black eye it was to the United States government for a few reasons. So, for instance, out of the cables and the emails and the communications that were part of that massive amount of data that he leaked, it was revealed that we were uh, lying, publicly lying with other governments about security arrangements, which isn't unusual, but when you're caught in it, it's embarrassing. Or there were cables from our own ambassadors about foreign ambassadors and politicians in other countries that were very unflattering. Lots of mea culpas, I'm sure, going around from U.S. consulates to other consulates around the, the world because of these revelations. And then last also, they showed our duplicity in that we were saying some things publicly and we, we were doing something quite different privately. And so there was this embarrassment factor about what came out on this. If your emails were made public tomorrow, what would they tell us about you and who you associate with, who you hang out with, what would they tell us, the tweets and the conversations, the texts, you know, in person or by phone, email, any of those means of communication we use? If they were revealed tomorrow, what would it tell others about who we hang out with and how we speak to and about other people? What would that reveal of us, as he did, of the U.S. government's communications we're winding down Paul's letter to the Colossians this morning, and it's a series of commendations and greetings. And on one level, it doesn't sound like it's not deep theology. It sort of might read like stuff you could just walk over and forget, but there's some great lessons to be had. This is our last morning in Colossians. Last time in it, we're going to wind down in those last final verses. And we won't be covering much theology, but we do learn about a lot about the companions we choose and how we speak to and about other people. Great lessons here from Paul. If you've got a Bible, you can open to Colossians 4, 7 through 18 is where we'll park. If you've got a study sheet, and apologies, didn't, didn't know how many uh, study sheets and bulletins we'd need this morning. So some of you will have study sheets and some of you won't. Colossians 4, Paul's talked about prayer in the section directly preceding this one, and now he winds down. He says, Tychicus, Tychicus, nice name there, will tell you all about my activities. 
He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Damas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains and grace be with you. So let me take this in order. Paul first commends Tychicus and Onesimus because they delivered the letter. So these two guys have taken the letter and they've showed up here at the church in Colossae. Now, listen to Paul's description of Tychicus. Beloved, faithful servant, you can count on him. I know that when he comes, he will encourage you. This is a guy that when you look at every reference in the Bible about him, he is always gold. He is golden. Every reference about him is positive. He was one of the trusted contingent from Asia who went with Paul. If you remember, in the New Testament epistles, most of what we have about giving has to do with the collection for the church in Jerusalem. And so the Gentile churches had collected money and they sent it with Paul to Jerusalem for the church and the suffering saints there. Well, Tychicus was one of the guys that accompanied Paul. He was to verify that the funds were overseen properly, that no one was pilfering them, that they got to their destination safely. So from the very beginning, when Tychicus shows up, this is a guy that you could trust with your money. He was trusted with money from other people. That's his first mention on the scene, Acts 20, verse 4. He was also the one who brought the letter from Paul, this letter to the Colossians. And later, if you see Ephesians 6, verse 21 through 22, he also delivered that letter as well. Now, it's no small thing that other people trust you with their money. So that's a good start. But if you say, I've entrusted God's word to an individual upon whom hinges the disposition and the spread of God's word to others, that's another thing entirely. So if you think about this, we say as a church that we believe that the Bible in the original autographs are the word of God inerrant. God breathed. So Tychicus was carrying the God breathed original documents. We don't have any of these. They don't exist. You know, they've gone the way of the dust. We have copies, and we have copies of copies. But Tychicus was not only entrusted 
with the wealth of other people. He was entrusted with two of the epistles that have strengthened the church, those God-breathed documents that Paul spoke to a secretary who wrote down most of them, and then Paul signed with his own signature. Tychicus was the guy whom God and Paul entrusted with the word of God breathed and then put down in those original documents to get those to their destination. And that's the reason we have them today. Now it's interesting, you'll see later in this same text, we know that there was a letter that went to Laodicea, and we don't have that letter. It didn't survive, and it's not part of the Scriptures. But God made sure that the letters that He intended to come down, to be handed down to the church, they survived. Tychicus was put in responsibility over two of those. This was a guy who was trusted with other people's money, the churches, but he was also trusted with the Word of God, two of the original epistles from Paul. Tychicus was also trusted as a a messenger. You see this in Titus 3, verse 12. And again, at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, 12, Tychicus was the one Paul could count on as a messenger again. So this is a guy, this is one of Paul's companions. And when Paul needs someone to carry his message, he gives it to this guy, to Tychicus. Trusted with money, trusted with God's word, trusted as a messenger to other people in other churches. You know, it's great to have a Tychicus in your company. You know, we want guys like this around. You know, the Bob Bob is here. The Bob Hannibals are this kind of person or people, people that we trust with the funds of the church. We have Tychicuses in this church, and we rely on them. They're men whose standard is gold. We count on them. And that's what this guy was like, Tychicus. In fact, as we go through these characters, because these are basically short vignettes into a a number of different people, ask yourself, am I like this person in the positive aspects? There's some negatives here too. Am I like this person in ways I don't want to be? And who in my life is like this? Do I have a person that I can rely on like Paul did, Tychicus? Just who, who does this look like in my life? What does this mean for me? He also sends this letter with Onesimus. Now, Onesimus' name is interesting. That means profitable. And most of what we know from Onesimus is actually from another letter, right? From the letter to Philemon. And we know from Philemon that Onesimus has a very common name for slaves. Useful. Because Onesimus was a slave. We read that in the letter to Philemon. So when Paul writes about Onesimus here, though, notice he says, faithful, beloved brother. He's one of you. Now, it's interesting what Paul says, and it's, to me, more interesting what he does not say. So, Paul does not say Onesimus the slave. You know, in fact, if you go to Philemon, we know that when Onesimus left his master's household, he left under a cloud. He did not leave with Philemon's blessing. In fact, he did the very thing Paul tells slaves not to do. So he left Philemon's household, somehow ends up in Rome and meets Paul and becomes a Christian. And so now Paul says, well, now he's Onesimus, the faithful, beloved brother. 
And when Paul sends him back, he sends him back with a letter, by the way, to Philemon, his master, in which Paul asks Philemon, he says, hey, why don't you receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but now as a fellow brother in Christ? And anything he owes you, because we assume that when Onesimus left, he stole either money or wealth of some kind, probably to help himself along the road between the Lycus Valley here and over to Rome where he ended up. And Paul asks him to forgive that debt or to charge it to Paul's account. So Philemon is part of this Colossian church. Everyone knows Onesimus. And I have no doubt everyone knows what Onesimus did and that he left under a cloud and that he owes Philemon money and that he's disobeyed every one of Paul's commands to slaves. But when Paul comments on him here, he brings none of that up. On the personal level in the letter to Philemon, he tells him to make it right. Go back, be restored. Philemon, receive him, forgive him. If he owes you anything, I'll take care of that. But publicly to the church, he brings up none of that baggage. And he says, Philemon is now a brother in Christ. He's one of you. You know him. But Paul makes absolutely no reference to any of the negative, any of the baggage stuff that Onesimus had. I think that's interesting. So Onesimus leaves Philemon's household unsaved and a slave. And he returns to Colossae, a brother in Christ, and someone Paul asked Philemon to make, not a slave any longer, but simply a a beloved brother. So isn't it interesting what Paul does not say? He says, welcome him back as a brother. He's one of you. You know all about him. But Paul doesn't say anything negative. It's entirely positive. And I think that's because Paul's as good as his word. You remember back in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said that when a person is converted, when they're born again, he said, behold, all things become new. Old things have passed away and all things are new. And when Paul talks about Onesimus here, that's the way he treats him. His past sins, his past lives, they're gone. They're over their history. I don't even bring them up. He's a new creation in Christ, and that's the way I speak of and act toward him. You know, it's a great question for me, and I hope it is for you too. Do we let other people's past sins, do we let them occupy perhaps the the pages of history, but not our current interaction with them? You know, all of us sin, for sure. James says we all sin a lot, not a little. So that we sin is a given. We're called to forgive. How are we at forgiving others? And when I say this, I do not mean imprudently or unwisely. Someone that sinned, do do we treat them as if they're still carrying the baggage of that sin? Or if they've done what they can to make things right, do we treat them as a beloved brother in Christ and go on down the road with them? Because that's what Paul's doing with Onesimus. That's what we're called to do. There may be trust issues. There may be relationship building that has to occur over time. Not minimizing any of that. But do we follow Paul's lead here in letting things from the past be history and treat someone in the present? If they've confessed, if they've repented, if they've restored what they can, do we let them go on as new creatures in Christ that they are? Paul did with Onesimus, we should as well. Paul gives 
six greetings, three from Jewish believers and three from Gentile believers. He starts with Aristarchus, verse 10, my fellow prisoner greets you. This is another guy who just, there's nothing negative about Aristarchus. He's a traveling companion of Paul's back in Acts 19.29 from the city of Ephesus. Like Tychicus, he takes the funds from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem later. He's a loyal supporter of Paul, and now he's with him in prison, Aristarchus. He sends greetings from Mark also. We'll park on Mark for a minute the way we did Onesimus. This is interesting. Uh, This is John Mark. And so we go way back to Acts 12 to find the first instance of John Mark in the scriptures. And we know from there that John Mark, probably from a well-to-do family because the early church is meeting in his mother Mary's house when they're praying for Peter who's been arrested. The church is gathered in his mother's house, praying for Peter's release. That's the house Peter comes to when the angel turns him loose from prison. That's John Mark's origin. So it comes from a well-to-do family. He also accompanies Paul and his cousin Barnabas on the first missionary journey in Acts 13. Now they get to Perga, John Mark's with them. And Luke tells us in Acts 13, 13, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, if you read this story, it just sounds like an incidental. John Mark's with Paul and Barnabas. They're going along. He goes on part of this journey, gets to a certain point, and he heads back home. And that sounds fine, but it wasn't. And Luke is the master of understatement. You you realize this as you read through Acts especially. So we learn what happened later in Acts 15. So... Paul and Barnabas, they're going to take another journey. They're going to go back in there and encourage all those new brothers in Christ in those new Gentile churches. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark again. And Paul says, no way. He deserted us. He forsook the work. We counted on him. And he cut and ran back home. Paul says, no way is he coming on this trip. And they argue over it. Now these are two... These are two great guys, by the way, arguing so severely they will not work together after this. They don't. So Paul grabs Silas and they go back, back to those churches in Asia. Now, this could have been the end of the story for John Mark, and it's not. And perhaps the key link in the chain, the reason that he still has a future that we read about in the scriptures and that Paul's talking about him in this letter is because of his cousin Barnabas. So... He forsook the work. He failed miserably. Maybe a lack of courage. Not sure why. It doesn't tell us. But he failed. He ran out when they were counting on him. But his cousin Barnabas takes him. And they go back to Cyprus. You know, when you read about Barnabas in Acts, this is another sterling guy. You know, his real name is not Barnabas. We always call him that. But that's not his name. It's his nickname. His real name is Joseph. So they call him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And when you meet Barnabas in Acts 5, he's selling lands to give money to the church to provide for people's needs. And you know what else he does? What other character in the Bible he connects with early on? There's this wild man 
named Saul from Tarsus. And he's persecuting the church. And somebody said he converted and became a Christian, but I don't believe them. There's no way. And so who is it that goes up to Saul of Tarsus, formerly the persecutor of the church, now a born-again Christian that nobody wants to associate with, afraid it's a ruse? Who's the guy that goes up and pulls Paul in, pulls Saul, soon to become Paul in? Well, that would be Barnabas. Barnabas gives Paul credibility. And when the church in Antioch needs help, who is it that calls Paul back from Tarsus to go help the church to get Paul plugged into his ministry that God's called him to? Well, that's, that's Barnabas again. This was his specialty. So Barnabas takes John Mark. He's failed, and he's failed miserably. And Barnabas picks him up anyway and disciples him. This older, more mature brother takes this guy who'd cut and run and says, I don't think God's finished with you, and I'm going to invest in you. And so later, after this investment, John Mark's rise, he sort of rises to the stars here. He becomes one of Paul's right-hand men. He's a lot like Onesimus. In the case of Onesimus, you have a pagan, an unbeliever, who cuts and runs, probably steals in the doing, gets saved, and is then restored. In John Mark's case, you've got a believer who fails, but someone doesn't give up on him. Someone says, I don't believe that defines your future and your life. I believe God has plans for you. And so Barnabas very intentionally invests in him so that later Paul will say, hey, send Mark to me. He's useful to me for service. Isn't that interesting? See, the guy, Paul couldn't afford on the mission field to have someone that he couldn't depend on. So Paul not taking John Mark the second time, that made sense. That was appropriate. That's not a a strike against Paul. Paul couldn't afford that to happen again, and John Mark apparently wasn't ready for that work. But Barnabas invests in him. And what's the end of that guy's life? Well, now Paul says, hey, send John Mark. He's useful. I can count on him. I can depend on him. You know who else depended on John Mark later? The Apostle Peter. So John Mark's mentioned in 1 Peter 5. And when you read the third gospel, whose gospel is that? That's John Mark's. Now we think that's Peter's record. That is that it's officially Peter's account that John Mark recorded, wrote down, and it bears his name. But that's the guy here that cut and ran early But his story wasn't over because an older Christian pulled him aside and invested in him. And we need Barnabases. You know, all of us, are we have lots of faults. We need someone that can see past our faults. And that takes a maturity. See past our faults and, and speak reproof probably and correction and say, hey, this is where you blew it. You know, not, not hide our faults, be up front with us. But invest, with, invest in us and see what possibilities we have in God's work. And that's what Barnabas did for John Mark. That was by no means the end of his story. So Paul counts on him later. He writes one of the Gospels. Isn't this interesting? He is, he is a right-hand man to both the key apostle to the Gentiles and the key apostle to the Jews. No small thing. That's John Mark. The last 
Paul mentions Jesus, uh, probably changed his name to Justice to get away from uh, Jesus. I find it interesting today. You know, in the Hispanic community, it's still normal to call someone Jesus. And, and it's like, I hear that and realize their name is Jesus. And it's just like, what? Well, Jesus here probably changed his name, but it's to a good name, to Justice, which literally means justice or righteousness. And this is all we know about him. That's it. It's interesting that Paul closes this section of verse 11 with a note of sadness. He says, these are the only three guys of the circumcision that are working with me. These are the only three. I wish there were more. Uh, Paul was not a guy who needed the limelight. He didn't need to be the only guy on the block. He didn't need to be the key guy. Do you know what I mean? He was willing to share. And he wanted to pull as many people into ministry as he could. And as many people into salvation as he could. So when you read Paul in Romans 9 and 10 about Jews, Jewish brothers, the folks that he shared that blood relationship and history with, he said that I have unceasing grief in my heart because I wish they'd become saved. And here he says, I wish there were a whole whole lot more Jewish believers who were in the work with me. He doesn't need the spotlight. He wants to bring in as many as possible. Paul switches then to some Gentile believers. I'll just mention briefly Epaphras. His name means lovely. We've already talked about Epaphras because he came up in the first chapter, verse 7. Epaphras was the guy that had become a believer and brought the gospel back to the Lycus Valley, to Laodicea, to Heropolis, to Colossae. There's a church in Colossae because Epaphras shared the gospel. So he heard the gospel, most people think in Ephesus. He got saved, and like Paul, he had a burden for the people he knew, and he carried the gospel back to these cities from which he had come, and that's why there were churches in these locations. And he wasn't done there, because here, Paul says, verse 12, he's always struggling on your behalf in prayers. Verse 13, he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, and Heropolis. This was a guy who worked to bring the gospel back to the people he knew and cared about. And past that, when he is in prison also, far away from them, he's not with them in person, but he's with them in spirit. And Paul says he's working hard. I don't know if I would ever qualify my prayer as hard work, but Epaphras worked hard in prayer for the sake of the Colossians and the Laodiceans. Philemon's household, those Christians he knew who'd come to Christ because he cared enough to take the gospel back to the people he knew and loved. That's Epaphras. One of his other traveling buddies is Luke. This is also Luke of the the Gospels. Lucas, it means light or light giver. This is the text from which we know he's a physician. You know, and Luke wrote both Luke, the gospel that bears his name, but also Acts, the Acts of the Apostle. And we know Luke was a traveling companion with Paul from Acts 16 on, off and on. When you read Acts, you'll see those plurals, those we went someplace, we went something versus Paul went. And that's when Luke is traveling with him. Luke was one of his regular companions. And last of the Gentile Christians Paul sends greetings from is Damas. That's short for Demetrius. Damas is an interesting person. 
he's with Paul here, and he sends his greetings. But what we learn of Damas later, just as John, Mark, and Onesimus, if you will, they started sort of as failures, and they worked up in faithfulness, Damas is the opposite. He enjoyed this position of fellowship with Paul up here, and he goes down. So we know from 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Paul says there, Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. John Mark deserted the work on the mission field, but was restored. That's the last word we have on Damas. You know, I think often of uh, most of us, in one way or another, we want to protect ourselves. That is, we want to be choosy about who our friends are, maybe who we work with, who we hang out with. And part of the reason we do that is because we don't want to get hurt. We don't want to give someone the ability to hurt us, to desert us, to betray us, if we can help it. Now, some of that's appropriate. We don't want to be stupid in our relationships. And relationships, they speak a lot into our life. They have a big impact on us, who we hang out with, what those relationships look like. But Paul had a guy who he'd invested in, who traveled with him, who's one of his messengers, whose whose final word in Scripture is that he deserted me. Paul's in prison. Paul's life is almost over. He's going to be beheaded shortly after 2 Timothy. And when a guy could really use a friend, Damas deserts him and leaves. And it's not just that he leaves. Paul says... He's in love with this present world. There's something better for me elsewhere. I want something else. And it's not being faithful with Paul, this guy that's stuck in a Roman prison. Paul had a guy who at the end of his life deserts him. And guys, in our relationships, at the end of the day, we cannot discern ahead of time who's going to remain true and who's not. And we cannot predict Who's going to stay with it and finish well? And who's going to give up and fall out entirely? We have no idea. You know, among ourselves, in this room, among our friends, in our family, we don't know. When we invest in someone that ends up being a Damas, there's a real pain and there's real loss. There's real hurt. There's real rejection. And we accept that. And we take that, and we forgive in Christ's name, and we go on down the road. But we cannot keep this from happening. We do not know who will remain faithful and who won't. We can't predict that. It's interesting, too, when Jesus chose the 12 apostles, prayed all night, he knows exactly who the Father wants him to choose, and Jesus is quite intentional that he chooses Judas, doesn't he? Now, Jesus knows from the get-go who Judas is and what he is and what he'll do. But he still chooses him. Jesus knew what it was to give himself fully. Judas has no different treatment from Jesus in the gospel accounts. Knowing fully who and what he was, he still gave him exactly the same treatment he gave the other disciples. Didn't hold anything back. And when we invest in others, we want to give them our best. And we want to know doing that that some are going to 
fall short and some perhaps might betray, some might desert. We don't control that, but we still invest. We're going to have our Damases as Paul did as well. Paul said to uh, give greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. I don't know if your response is the same as mine when I read that, but when I hear Laodicea, I always think of Revelation chapter 3, the lukewarm church at Laodicea. But they weren't always lukewarm. And at this point in the early life of the church, Paul just says, hey, give the brothers there my greetings. Good brothers, the church in Laodicea. And how do they get from there to Revelation 3, which is probably 30 years down the road? How do they get from their, their good church in Laodicea to their, the epitome of what we don't want to be? It probably wasn't one singular decision. You know, lukewarm is sort of a, a stage on the heat gauge, isn't it? They probably just got a little less warm, a little less warm, a little less warm, slowly and over time. That's how we become like them. But they didn't start that way. Like Damas, they started well. They didn't finish well. The church at Laodicea, another warning. Let me give the last of these, just say about Archippus. Isn't it interesting? This is a public letter read in the church. Philemon, by contrast, written at the same time, delivered with the same two guys, is sort of more of a personal letter. And that's the one in which Paul seeks to restore Philemon with Onesimus. Issue between two people, it's a letter that goes to the individuals, it's sort of private. I mean, it's public now because we all read it, but it wasn't when it was sent. But here, in a public letter, Paul says to Archippus, hey, make sure you do what you're supposed to do. Why do you think he did that? That's like a kick in the pants to me. Does it come across that way to you? He could have said in the letter to Philemon, hey, by the way, would you talk to Archippus and would you say, hey, make sure you do what you're supposed to do. But he doesn't. He says it publicly. And and it would have been really easy to say this in the letter to Philemon because Archippus is either a son or at least a relative to Philemon because he's included in Philemon's household in Philemon's letter. So Paul's strategic. On one hand, you've got an Onesimus, and all he says publicly is, hey, whatever you knew about this guy in the past, he's a beloved brother now, accept him as such. But to Archippus, he publicly says, hey, make sure you do what you're supposed to do. Finish your work. My guess is he knew Archippus needs a kick, and he needs other people who've heard that same thing to maybe ask him, hey, are you doing what you're supposed to do? He was strategic in what he shared privately, and publicly. And we can do that same thing. What's going to help someone? He didn't love Archippus any less than anyone else. He felt Archippus needed that public word to keep him encouraged to fulfill his duties. So he was willing to do that. So are we Tychicus? Are we Onesimus? You know, how, where do we stack up you know it's sort of a rogues gallery on one hand and sort of the brightest and the best on the other we're all going to see elements of these guys in our own life and we're going to see elements of these guys lives in the lives of those we share fellowship with 
We want to aspire high. Paul, just like us, he had the good, the bad, and the ugly in his life. You know, you don't know. And that's going to be true for all of us. We want to invest as deeply as we can and as widely. I hope that this has been a good letter for you. Uh, This concludes Colossians. I love the fact that Paul not only told the Colossians that when they spoke to others to speak with grace and salt, and I think that's exactly what you see him doing here. He commends those who can be commended. He reproves some that need to be reproved. He takes time to commend each of his friends. He exhorts with the responsibilities to keep. I think he's a great example of what he preached. We're going to close here with a video. It actually doesn't even reference Colossians, but the theme is consistent with the larger message of Colossians. If you remember back weeks or months ago, Paul wrote this letter because there were heretics in this church who said, you need something and someone more than Christ. And Paul said, well, really, you don't. That Christ is the very God of very gods, and you have Christ, God, by his spirit in you. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Steve Green talked about this a little bit a week ago. He said the gospel changes our relationship with God and with others. Changes the relationship in two different ways. When we talk about the gospel, we usually say Jesus died for our sins, which is gloriously true. And what that means is there's atonement and there's forgiveness. That's a good thing. We've got to have that. But that's not the end of the gospel. Colossians has the rest of the gospel, if you will, when it's not just Jesus died for you, it's now Christ is in you. Jesus died for me, that's forgiveness. Christ is now in me, that's glory, Paul says. Christ in us is our hope, our certain expectation of our future glorious existence with God. Jesus died for me, my sins are forgiven, but I'm still a mess. But Christ in me, that's transformation. You know, Christ died for me, that gets me into heaven. But Christ in me, that's the transformation of Christ's likeness in me, in my life, here and now. And you know, Paul's got this rogues gallery, and that's really true of the church generally, isn't it? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that when God reaches down and saves, most of us aren't the wealthy, we're not the brightest and the best, we're not the cream of the cream, but we're, most of us, he says, we're sort of the lower elements of society. But God takes us, takes us failures, moral failures at least, he forgives our sins, and then he begins this process of transformation. And that's what you'll see in the video, and then we'll close in prayer. I love that that ends with the camera pointed at you and me, and what God was willing to do for Paul, or for Onesimus, or others he'll do for us too. So Jesus died for our sins, that's forgiveness and atonement, that's good. But Colossians is Christ is in us. That's transformation. That's new things from old.
Father, we ask that you would glorify your son Jesus by enlarging his presence and the fruits of his spirit in us. Father, we agree with Paul that those of us who have trusted you for salvation have put away old things and are in fact new creations in Christ. Heavenly Father, would you continue to complete that good work you began in us by your spirit? Would you help us to put away old things? Would you help us to embrace the life of Christ in us? Father, for those who haven't taken that step yet and seen the transforming power of Christ through the gospel at work in their lives, would you bring them lovingly to yourself today and would you begin showing them how beautiful life in Christ can be. Lord, we worship you and we declare your praises now together. Amen.